This program is a production of the Reformed Forum, an organization devoted to producing and distributing Reformed theological content for a connected age. Online at reformedforum.org. This is Christ the Center, episode number 265. Today we speak with Nelson Klosterman about Herman Bovink on the Christian family. Welcome to Christ the Center, Doctrine for Life, your weekly conversation in Reformed Theology. This is episode number 275. My name is Camden Busey. I'm recording from Wheaton, Illinois. We have a couple great guys with me today. Let me introduce to you our contributor, uh, David Filson, who is teaching pastor at Christ Covenant PCA in Nashville, Tennessee. He's also a PhD candidate at Westminster Theological Seminary just outside of Philadelphia. Welcome back to the program, David. It's great to speak with you this morning. Thanks. So good to be with y'all. Yeah, and we also uh, are very excited to speak today with, welcoming back to the program, Dr. Nelson Klosterman. He is Executive Director of Worldview Resources International, and he also works as a translator of many great Dutch uh, Reformed theological works. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Klosterman. It's great to speak with you. Thank you, Camden. Uh, I'm delighted to be with you today. And we're uh, very delighted to have you back. We just spoke with uh, Dr. Klosterman, the listener will know, uh, few months ago about his contributions to the book Kingdoms Apart, which is a look at uh, the two kingdoms uh, perspective and natural law. So we had a great conversation there. But today we're going to be speaking about a book by Herman Bovink titled The Christian Family. Uh, But it's new in English and just been translated. And Nelson was the translator. Uh, We're going to speak about that in a moment. Uh, But before we do so, I do need to pause and just mention that Christ the Center is listener supported. And we encourage you to visit us on our website at Reformed Forum org slash donate today to pledge your support. We have so many great things coming up, and we need your help uh, just to help us uh, to move into the next era of Reform Forum's life as I transition into full-time pastoral ministry. Um, we're looking forward to the new opportunities before us at Reformed Forum, but we need your help to be able to continue to do all that we love to do. So visit us online today at reformedforum.org slash donate. We thank you so much for your support of everything we do at Reformed Forum and this particular program, Christ the Center. Now, Nelson, before we get into this uh, particular book, Herman Bovink and the Christian Family, I do want to provide you opportunity to speak about anything else that you have going on. I know you do an awful lot of work uh, with Worldview Resources International, your organization there, but also just an awful lot of translating. What's on your table these days? Well, thank you for the opportunity to talk about this. Uh, I have, uh, since I began about two two years ago, I have uh, enlisted the services of six people who are working for me on a contract basis as translators, wow. whose translations then I review and edit to, as I like to say, uh, remove any Dutch accents that might be still <laughs> present in, in the English translation. Um, but the works that are underway include, of course, uh, the 23-volume commentary by uh, Cornelis Bonk and Franz von Dersen called Opening the Scriptures. Now, the first volume on Genesis should be out any day now in paperback, followed quickly by the volume on Exodus, and we have about six other volumes in production in various stages of editing at the moment of that of that commentary series called Opening the Scriptures. It's, uh, it's not a verse-by-verse commentary. It's uh, more a biblical-theological uh, discourse, uh, essay-type commentary on various books of the Bible, and uh, so it'll give a fresh approach for 
for those who are studying the Bible. It's very accessible to uh, to Christians. It's not designed for the academic scholar. It's designed for the uh, for the church member. You might say that's uh, that's my one of my major projects. Um, another one is uh, the project of Common Grace by Abram Kuyper, and uh, the first volume has been translated and is edited and should be coming out in a variety of forms within uh, within a few months for sure. And uh, volume two is underway in terms of translation as well. Uh, the other mag- uh, magnum opus of Kuyper that we're working on is called Pro Rega. It's a three-volume work. Uh, for the King, and the first volume is finished, and I'm not sure what the projected publication date of that is. In addition, we have a uh, an anthology coming out rather soon of Kuiper's teaching on the church. In fact, in April, there is an annual conference at Princeton, uh, Kuiper Conference, and I believe that there's going to be a little teaser volume prepared for that conference of Kuiper's essay, entitled, or a sermon really, Rooted and Grounded, which was his inaugural sermon when he took up uh, his ministry in Amsterdam. Very, very interesting uh, sermon on the nature of the Church as institution and as organism. Um, In addition, recently uh, I obtained funding for uh, what I'm calling the Dalma Project. Uh, The fellow with whom I studied and obtained my doctorate is Dr. Professor Jochem Dalma, who happens to be retired, is a reformed ethicist from the Netherlands, has written a number of books, and uh, one of the first that's underway currently is his annotated edition of Skilder's book, Christ and Culture. Oh, we're going to get a new, a new, fresh translation of that book, and hopefully uh, within a year we're going to see that one out. Now, you translated one of Dalma's books right on the, on the Decalogue. Yes, actually, uh, not only the Decalogue called the Ten Commandments yeah. Manual for the Christian Life, yes, yes, but that's also right. also translated his book called Responsible Conduct, mm-hmm. which is an introduction to Christian ethics. I remember uh, reading his book on uh, on Christian ethics there, the one you translated for my ethics class in seminary, and it was tremendously helpful. I encourage the listeners to pick up anything that Dalma uh, has written; it's tremendously useful. <laughs> Yeah, it's. Uh, I, I'm very gratified by the reception both of his books have received. Mm-hmm. They're very accessible. They're accessible for uh, for Christians around the world. It's being used uh, around the world, English-speaking world, on a variety of levels, not only seminary, but to my surprise, it's become a college textbook, and it's even used on the high school level. Wow. Yeah. That's excellent news. Yeah, well, I'd yeah. like to send my kid to that high school. <laughs> it's good good uh, teaching on Christian education. I'm sure we can read plenty about that in the forthcoming books on uh, by Abraham Kuyper. That is just great news to hear all those things coming out. And I hope there'll be a resurgence in all this Dutch Reformed uh, scholarship as there was when uh, the Bavink uh, uh, Reformed dogmatics came out in English. Indeed, I do too, yes. Yeah. Well, the book we have in front of us uh, is an excellent little book on the Christian family by Herman Bovink. I'd like to start uh, our discussion on this particular book just by um, making a very obvious uh, observation, though. Bovink is often known for being just a premier systematic theologian, but it seems that not many people would be familiar with his work on the family and some of these more uh, practical types. Not that his dogmatics don't have practical material in there. Certainly they do. Um, but has this been somewhat of a hidden title, at least uh, in the English-speaking world? Has this been somewhat of a gem that's been hidden from view? Yes. You know, um, 
Bavink, as a as a reformed dogmatician, had within his packet of courses and interests also reformed ethics. As a matter of fact, um, his uh, handwritten uh, edition or a, a handwritten edition of his reformed ethics is in the possession, I think, of the Bavink Institute and is being translated as we speak. Uh, so he was not only a dogmatician, he was also an ethicist, a reformed ethicist. Now, together with Kuiper, that meant Bavink was interested in the issues of his day. One of the major ones had to do with women's suffrage and the right to vote. Um, in that connection, also Christian family. He's written on Christian psychology. He's written on Christian pedagogy. So his, uh, you might say, the application of doctrine was of vital interest to Herman Bobbing. Yeah, absolutely. How would you characterize this particular book, and, and how does it differ um, from many, if not most, contemporary books on marriage and the family? Well, I, I would say that um, Bobbing's little essay here, his little monograph, is, uh, negatively speaking, not a 10-step how to have a happy uh, and fruitful marriage, but it is rather a theology of marriage. And it is a biblical theology of marriage that um, opens up, in terms of, again, applying the principles of Scripture, opens up the significance of the family for human society. And we don't read, we don't have a lot of books on marriage, for example, that will tell us how significant and central the family is for cultivating a work ethic or cultivating a respect for authority or such things as that. Um, though Bobbing's work shows the traces of, of the time when it was written, for example, he's got a chapter on household servants and so forth, wow. um, nonetheless, his uh his enunciation or explanation of biblical teaching, I think, is timeless, and that, that I think, represents the contribution of the book as well. Mm -hmm. um, could you speak a little bit about Bavink's biography and maybe connect that to how that might have shaped his views, both in his family as, as he was growing up as a child and also later as a husband and as a father? Well, um, just for general information, mm -hmm. his dates his dates uh, would be 1854 to 1921. Um, he was uh, the second of 11 children. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, so uh, he was a member of a large household, and therefore he could probably see firsthand uh, what he later came to write about as the uh, functioning of a Christian family in terms of various roles and various benefits and blessings and advantages and challenges to a Christian family. Um, in addition, he, the home he, in which he grew up was a devout home. It was a Christian home. And so he knew what it was to have family worship that was regular, that was uh, meaningful and formative. And so Herman Bobbing is, was himself the beneficiary and the, uh, the, the fruit of such uh, family nurture. He was married, he, uh, he was a father, and he got, the, therefore, the opportunity to pass along what he himself had received and learned. Now, of course, um, his, his life spanned the turn from the 19th to the 20th century, and all of the sociological and historical phenomena of that time were not foreign to Bobbing in terms of the challenges to the family and somewhat the structure of the family and some of the um, 
some of the uh, habits and customs that have gone by the wayside a little bit in, in contemporary uh, family living. Not, not altogether unavoidable, I might add, because as history progresses and things change, we, uh, we have to find new forms in which to embody the principles to which we're committed, and Bob Inc. was no stranger to that either. So he wasn't, he wasn't uh, petrified either in his theology or in his ethics. He wasn't static. He was prepared to address contemporary issues. Now, speak a little about that transition, especially as it pertains to Europe and specifically the Netherlands. Uh, what what were some of the factors going on in Europe at that time? How did they come to impact the family? Um, I'm curious to expand upon the context in which this book was written. Well, I think uh, I think there I could identify three phenomena uh, that played a role in this. Uh, in this uh, discussion for Bob Inc. One, of course, was the Industrial Revolution with everything that that brought about in terms of labor, labor laws, labor relationships, and uh, all of the uh, things positive and negative that we've learned in school from our history books about what that meant, the Industrial Revolution, what that meant for the family. Uh, you have people now moving out of the home in terms of their work. We don't have craft. We don't have apprenticeship as much, nearly as much as we do uh, uh, factory work. We have children and young people and women working in factories now, and that all together has somewhat of a disruptive influence on the family and represents a challenge then for uh, keeping the family together. So that's one uh, phenomenon. Uh, another another phenomenon that Bob Inc. encountered, as I mentioned earlier, had to do with with women's suffrage, and the, what that represented for some people, as it is today, for some people, uh, they were debating roles, uh, gender roles, and whether such was appropriate for a woman to be allowed to vote, and what that meant in terms of her relationship to her husband and uh, whether a democratic approach in society would corrode uh, authority structure and relationships in the home. So those challenges were present in, in the transition Bob Inc. lived through. And, um, and finally, Bob Inc. in his book was very expressive and detailed about the danger of the state in terms of wanting to... Uh, uh, aggregate to itself uh, power and authority with respect to the family, particularly in the area of uh, pedagogy, education, and nurture. In, in Bobbing's own day, there was, there was no shortage of visionaries and utopian thinkers who saw the state as being able to do a better job of nurturing the children than the family could do. And he, he thought that impulse and that movement tooth and nail very, very aggressively. Dr. Klosterman, I'm, I'm curious, those very interesting uh, points about the transition there that he was facing. Do you think that there's a context today in which this book is especially relevant? I mean, what are two or three things you would say today that make a book like this so relevant? Well, um, I'm so glad that you asked that question because in, in a mere two hours, the United States Supreme Court will begin hearing oral arguments in connection with California's Proposition 8 having to do with what is being called uh, homosexual marriage. Uh, I prefer not to call it that because that is contradiction in terms, in my judgment. 
it is a homosexual union. Um, but we, and, and so there's a relevant point. Number one, who gets to define marriage? Does the state? Bob Inc. would say that the Bible defines marriage. In fact, he spends a chapter or two talking about marriage in the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, and has a fascinating introductory chapter on the Trinitarian basis and the Trinitarian nature of the family, the father, mother, and children. So uh, today, as we speak, that very notion of who gets to define what marriage is and what the family is, is under question and is under review. Secondly, uh, the relevance of Bobbing's work involves uh, also the notion of economy and industry and work. As a matter of fact, the ancient Greek word for household, you may know, was oikonomia. And from oikonomia, we get our English word economy. So economy, economics began and begins with a family. It's there that a child, for example, learns the value of things, of possessions, of money, the value of time, the value of work. And so uh, that's a point of contact between Bobbing's writing and our life today, that very basic and fundamental lessons in economics are taught and need to be taught in the home such that where the home breaks down, where the family disintegrates, these fundamental lessons are not being learned. And therefore, in the face of such ignorance, other forces, powers move in to do that education, perhaps in a way not as helpful. A third point of contact between Bob Inc. and today's situation, I think, has to do with the entire question of uh, selflessness. It's in, the, it's in the family, properly construed, properly functioning, that a person learns to deny himself or herself. It's in the family that service is learned. It's in the family that self-denial is cultivated. It's in the family that narcissism is overcome. And again, in the face of a breakdown in the family, these uh, virtues are uh, are left untaught, it seems to me. So Bob Inc.'s book, his little essay here, is a tremendous uh, help and contribution to Christian parents along these lines. Uh, that is quite useful. There's so many things there to expand upon. Um, let's let's uh, t- talk about some more basics. You've already alluded to how Bob Inc., um understands marriage and where we get its idea from, where it's defined. Can you... Um, Speak to that even further. I mean, he gets his definition of marriage from God, from his revelation in the Word. Um, where does he see it instituted, and how does he see it expand uh, throughout Scripture? Uh, what is its well, usefulness in God's plan? Yeah, one of the uh, uh, one of the most uh, attractive, I would say, um, serendipitous. Uh, sentences in Bobbing's book is his very first sentence when he says the history of the human race begins with a wedding. And the last sentence of his book reads like this. The history of the human race began with a wedding. It also ends with a wedding, the wedding of Christ and his church Mm -hmm. of the heavenly Lord with his earthly bride. Now that's a, that's a beautiful uh, envelope bookends there, which suggests that for Bobbing history is the his, is it's a marital history. It's a nuptial history. I'll use the word nuptial, in the sense that um, that uh, and, and this is probably a very important theological basis 
for bathing, that part of the image of God, an essential constituent element of the image of God, is the male-female relationship. I know that we as individuals, each of us, are image bearers of God. Bob Inc. teaches that in his dogmatics. But in this book, in particular, he identifies the male-female relationship that constitutes marriage to be imago dei, such that um, the Trinitarian fellowship and the Trinitarian communion that we know of to exist between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is, is imaged, replicated, represented in the fellowship and communion between husband, wife, and children, so that um, we, may, we may understand that marriage uh, roots in the Trinitarian being of God, which is, of course, reflected now in creation itself. Now, history, then, is the, is the story of the human family procreating and expanding throughout history such that for Bob Inc. as well, and this note you'll find in his Reformed Dogmatics, the image of God is not yet finished. It is not yet completed. It will be completed when the entire human race or humanity has been born. And so marriage as the institution by which procreation is protected and by which procreation is permitted uh, in the Bible, in God's design, marriage then becomes an essential component of history and historical unfolding for the human race as well. Yeah, there's a definite uh, eschatological aspect to this, seeing that you know we don't want to uh, neglect or discount the man as created in the image of God, but yet that's not the ultimate end. I mean, even held out to Adam before the fall was this uh, heightened or eschatological, glorified, you know, immutable life, confirmed life, I should say. And that's something that uh, the Lord is recovering by grace uh, throughout uh, all of history. His second chapter uh, in, I would say, true Bavinkian form is entitled The Disruption of the Family, and talks it talks about sin and its consequences. And um, so, as in good, uh, reformed, biblical understanding, the pillars of this um, theology and worldview are creation, fall, redemption, and glorification. And so, the fall, or sin, has to be uh, discussed in connection with the family. And um, he identifies the results of sin in terms of Genesis, uh, Genesis chapter 3, with respect to the punishments that are given, by the way, it is from Bobbing that I learned, and I have preached and spoken at conferences on this, that the first sin was a marital sin. That when mm-hmm. Adam and Eve sinned, very, very interestingly, that Eve engages in this conversation with Satan, and she engages not only, but she takes of the fruit. And we read in Genesis, and she gave to her husband who was with her, suggesting that this poor Adam was standing alongside the whole time, not doing what he was supposed to have been doing as her husband and as her leader. In other words, not only was the first sin a marital sin, but the first punishment was a marital punishment as well. In other words, you recall what, what was told to the woman, that she would have pain in childbirth, and her desire would be for her husband and he would rule over her. In other words, the disruption of sin affects fundamentally the 
the, uh, the, the orientation or the direction of marriage, not the structure, but the direction with respect to impulses and attitudes that now come to expression between husband and wife and children. Um, so the first punishment is given in terms of marriage, and therefore grace, the grace of the gospel, comes to address uh, those punishments such that now, and that grace, by the way, is present within the judgment pronounced. It's fascinating to hear of Bobbing's treatment, namely, when the woman is warned that she would have pain in childbirth, the gracious component is that she will still have children. And when Adam is warned that he will have uh, uh, sweat and toil in his labor, the promise there and the grace is that the, the earth will continue to yield its fruit to, to Adam and to mankind's use. And, and so whenever God speaks his judgment, that he speaks it is itself an act of grace. You know, there's one thing worse than a judging God, and that is a silent God. Yeah. So that when so that when God expresses His judgment, that is uh, an opportunity for repentance and an opportunity to return to Him, and then within that judgment is um, is the grace that is to be experienced. Now, in terms of the family life, then grace restores such living in terms of and according to the relationship of Christ and the Church, and. That that elevates, in, ter- in my understanding, that elevates the Christian family exceedingly high in terms of its nature, its purpose, its glory, and its function. You know, we, uh, as a pastor, I've done a number of weddings, and I've been asked to use as wedding text uh, material from Ephesians 5. We're all familiar with that analogy between mm-hmm. husband and wife and Christ and the Church. But it's interesting that there, the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 5, 31, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, quoting there from Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. But then he follows in verse 32, This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the Church. That is to say, marriage, the mystery of marriage, And the mystery of union and communion in marriage, he says, refers to Christ and the Church, such that um, the blessing of a Christian marriage is that it serves the Church. It grows the Church. There's where evangelism occurs, for example, in the heart of a child, in the home. Mm -hmm. It's there where a child first tastes grace and learns forgiveness, or not. There's the scary idea, or Mm -hmm. not. You know, how many Christian homes are characterized by, um, say, a, a tightness, a, a restriction with regard to grace, a performance theology, so to speak? It's in the home that we learn the gospel in a very real and concrete and tangible way. So for Bavink, the the restoration of, of the family through grace is really a gospel restoration, but it's also ecclesiologically driven. Mm-hmm. How does Bavink understand um, marriage as, as a calling? I mean, clearly not every person gets married. How does that fit into the overall scheme of, of uh, marriage, the redemptive historical view of it, and, and how it fits into God's overall plan, ideally exemplifying the relationship of Christ to his church? Well, he uh, naturally that 
particular phenomenon of of what we would call uh, singleness is uh, is a challenge um, when we identify marriage so highly in terms both of creation and redemption. And his answer, I think, would be that uh, single people, unmarried people, uh, are no less image of God and no less able to be fulfilled, completed as human beings, and that in Christ they find their union and communion with him and the Church, so that so that their service and their commitment to an identity with the Church becomes very, very important, whether male or female and unmarried, uh, for him, as I think for the Scriptures, the, uh, the Church supplies that, uh, that union and that communion. However, he would, he would argue that marriage is, is the general rule to which then singleness is the exception. Fascinating. Uh, Dr. Klosterman, I'm, I'm curious, you mentioned a few minutes ago uh, Bavink being raised in an atmosphere of family worship, and so I have kind of a two-part question here. What do you think family worship would have looked like uh, you know, as he was growing up, as he practiced it in his own family, and how can that be instructive for us today? And then secondly, what would be the role of the father with that, and then the role of the father within the family more generally, according to Bavink? Uh huh. Okay. Well, with regard to the first question about the shape of family worship in Bavink's day, um, I would think that uh, every meal was accompanied in Bavink's home. Every meal was accompanied with prayer and scripture reading, and that probably in the evening there was an extended time of worship, whereby uh, the father would lead worship, his father would lead worship, and. There would be um, discussion of the passage, probably reading a seriatim, that is, consecutively in a Bible book, and uh, there would be prayer, of course, those elements. But here's a significant one that is continued even to this day in a number of Dutch homes with which I'm familiar, and that is the singing of a psalm. Mm. Uh, Psalm singing or singing alongside Bible reading and prayer were constitutive parts of family worship in Bobbing's home, as they were, as these were also in Bobbing's catechism classroom in church. So um, that, and, and what can we learn from that today? I think that we need to learn that the family worship is of, of the same character, uh, the same uh, style, shall we say, as our public worship. Mm-hmm. We should not try to create um, a different style at home, say, than in church. I'm thinking, for example, of uh, the solemnity, the um, as well as the joy, the freedom, as well as the form that we should be uh, we should be uh, worshipful and reverent, but also in terms of singing. I think we should use the home as a training ground for church, for church worship, for public mm-hmm. worship. I also think that the public worship should do a, a, a better job than we're used to seeing it in connecting with family worship. In other mm-hmm. words, um, I would challenge pastors who may be listening to this broadcast uh, to provide people in the congregation with a list of passages to read with a view to upcoming Sunday's sermon. Mm-hmm. 
and that such family worship can prepare and ready the family for the full participation of all members of the family in public worship. Yeah. So that's yeah. that's to the first question. It's excellent. Um, it is. The second the second question had to do with the headship uh, of the father, the role mm-hmm. of the father, that's right. the leadership of the father. I think that while as history progresses, the shape of father's leadership might change as time moves along, um, I do think that a good, healthy Christian family does pay some attention to distinction in roles, distinction in responsibilities, without making it a competition or a conflict. I think that one of the powerful witnesses that we can give as Christians in our culture today is to demonstrate the joy of leadership and and uh, helping, which I'm trying to relate here to Genesis chapter 2, how Adam was uh, formed first and then Eve, as the Apostle Paul identifies this in First Timothy 2, and how Eve was a, a helper suitable to him. Um, <clears throat> I don't think that we need to go to the extreme of what is called today the patriarchy movement, resurgent patriarchalism, by which I mean, you know, daddy baptizes, daddy catechizes, daddy mm-hmm. administers the Lord's Supper, etc., where the family is really the source of the church. Mm-hmm. Right, I, right, don't, right, I don't believe right. that. No. I think that Bavink offers I think, uh, a healthy biblical answer to that impulse of what's called patriarchalism. On the other hand, nor do I think egalitarianism uh, is the is the answer. There's a third way between patriarchalism and egalitarianism, and that third way, I think, is a kind of partnership, collaboration, where each gender, husband and wife, recognize and mutually endorse and support the role of the other. Wow. Yeah. So that, for me, in my understanding, and uh, this, I'm, here I'm reflecting me rather than bobbing, um, headship, the whole notion of headship, has less to do with the answering the question, who wears the pants in this house? Then it has to do with the question of who gets to die. Mm. Well said. Wow. wow. That is powerful. That'll preach. Now, speaking of that, I mean, clearly there's a challenge held out there uh, for all of our listeners. I know I'm challenged personally uh, when I hear that to uh, fulfill my God-given responsibility and role to my wife and my children. Uh, but that's something that we just, it's its odd these days. It's something we don't see in the broader culture. How does a Christian family, this Christian model, um, influence culture? How ought it to influence culture? And what happens when this God-given role and this God-given mode of community existence, as it were, uh, starts to disintegrate? Well, <clears throat> that's a that's a powerful question. And uh, let me give a two-step answer here on this one, okay? Sure. Um, over, the, over the recent years, I've become more and more convinced than ever that for every time we as Christians criticize what's called the world, 
that we need to point our fingers at ourselves, and we need to assess the question, to what extent are the world's problems the fault of the Church? To what extent are the world's um, uh, disabilities, the world's blind spots, the fault of an inconsistent Church, or a worldly Church, or a, a, an unsanctified Church? In other words, I'm, I'm not accusing. I'm simply trying to suggest that these are opportunities for self-examination. And before we uh, wag the finger or wag the tongue, uh, we, we really need to use the opportunity ourselves to repent and to uh, draw closer to the Lord. So that's, that's one thing to say about the family, then. If we are facing this very day a discussion about homosexual unions as a redefinition of marriage, uh, to what extent is the Church complicit in terms of its toleration, let's say, of heterosexual divorce, in terms of its toleration of, uh, of cohabitation mm-hmm. before marriage, and et cetera, et cetera. And we could go on to, to list some, some social and, and, and spiritual and moral phenomena. Now, to the second stage or level of, of, of my answer, I, how can Christian marriage influence society? My simple answer is so simple it's almost um, laughable. It has to do with the kindergarten model of show and tell. It seems <laughs> to me that as a Christian community, what we want to do is we want to produce culture. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of criticism out there about this whole transformational model that we as Christians need to go out there and transform culture. I understand the criticisms, and to an extent I share those criticisms. But the answer, then, is not to retreat from culture. It's not to suggest we have no, that the Church has no interrelationship with culture. Rather, it's that the Church needs, by its means of grace, the administration of means of grace, to produce culture, mm-hmm. as in Christian families, which then, through the exercise of Christian hospitality, fling open their doors and their windows and say to the world, would you like to see how it works? Come on in, let's, let us show you. Yeah. Let us show you what a Christian husband and a Christian wife and a Christian family looks like. Here's how we eat together. Here's how we play together. Here's how we shop together. Here's how we celebrate together. And that's how, you know, that's how we can, in a sense, through our structures and relationships, bear witness to the gospel, to the grace of Jesus Christ. Yeah. And that's, that's, not, that's not transformationalism. That's cultural productivity, it seems to me. Yeah, and then our, then our hope would be that people would see the gospel in our lives. And if they're eating meals with us and we're able to do family worship, maybe even incorporating guests into that, and so they can see, hopefully they'll, they'll hear God's word, and, and that's where the real transformation happens. It happens through the regeneration, through the work of the Holy Spirit. And then hopefully we see um, also uh, the culture change as a result, ideally. That was powerful to me, just even when I was in seminary, I didn't grow up in a in a reformed home, so to speak, and so we didn't have all of these family worship practices. We did devotionals once in a while, that sort of thing, but it was so uh, influential upon me just to be invited to somebody's house, and uh, after the meal, they just went on their family worship like... You know, they realized we were there, but they included us. They read scripture and and did a prayer and stuff, and it was just a tremendous and powerful example. And I think that more than more than if I would have read a book had more of an influence on me on how I wanted to lead my family. I think that's uh, that's an excellent uh, first person testimony 
Cannon, in terms of your own experience, to illustrate again this truth that the communication of the Christian gospel occurs most effectively by way of relationships. It sure does. And that you, you know, you got into somebody's home uh, by way of a friendship, mm-hmm. by way of an acquaintanceship, perhaps even business contacts. I think of businessmen who might be listening to this, where they could they could invite their business colleagues to their home, and as you say, normal is as normal does. <laughs> yeah. Let's just let's just be normal about what we do and show people this is how we eat, and this is how we drink, and this is how we read Bible at the conclusion of our eating and drinking. Yeah. Right. And and too often I think we're apologetic, not in the apologeo, you know, uh theological way, but we're apologetic saying, Oh, you know, just we we won't read the Bible today since we have a guest or that that sort of thing. <laughs> but if we've invited someone into the home, I mean there's gotta be some expectation that look, this person is is uh, happy to join you. Um, this person is is decided to come over. I mean, you're feeding them <laughs> and all that. I mean, it's it's not too much to say we're going to read this passage of scripture, uh, and it, then and then be prepared for the for the First Peter three fifteen yes, encounter. Exactly, exactly. Where they're going to say, "Why do you guys do this?" You're right. And then, of course, if you say an answer, uh, well, that's the way we were brought up. Well, you've missed the opportunity. I'm sorry, mm-hmm. you've missed the opportunity. Or you know, there are a number of different answers you could give, which do not really uh, are not gospel answers. Mm-hmm. You understand? Mm-hmm. And and I'm, what I'm trying to suggest is that the First Peter three fifteen opportunity gives us an opportunity to point people, direct people to the to the grace of the gospel, the mm-hmm. power of the gospel, and our thanksgiving for that gospel. Mm-hmm. It's it's interesting. I mean, we we we're always so worried about offending people, but the the gospel is offensive. I I remember when I worked at Caterpillar uh, before going off to seminary, there was a Muslim in in our work group, and sometimes you'd walk over to his to his um, cubicle and you need to talk to him about something, but he had his prayer mat out and he was doing his prayers, you know, facing uh, Mecca, and and that yeah. was just. It became normal, not that, of course, I had any agreement with what he was doing. Uh, and being a Christian, of course, it, it broke my heart to see someone, you know, open idolatry that way. But um, people did, weren't offended uh, in the in the sense that they were so upset that they had to wait five minutes uh, to uh, to talk to this guy to do work. And if and if he would have invited me to his house, or I should say, if he would have invited someone else to his house, and sundown come, you know, he feeds people, but then sun the sun goes down and he has to do their prayers. Do you think someone would stand up and storm out of the house? Cause they went and did their, their daily prayers. No, that's crazy. But Christians, we, we try to bend over backwards and try not to be distinct from the world. So as not to upset other people, but a people yeah. of other religions don't seem to always have that problem. Yeah. But imagine, imagine uh, expanding this show and tell principle yeah. to, to issues like, uh, Standing up and uh, and testifying with respect to abortion mm-hmm. or pro-life. Mm-hmm. How much more effective? How much more effective is Christian compassion rather than, say, Christian censoring? Mm-hmm. I'm suggesting not that we refrain from declaring what's wrong, right. but that we that we couple such a declaration about what's wrong with a demonstration of what's right yeah. by way of, by way of including people 
under the umbrella of compassion and care and sympathy without approving, without approving for a moment, any negative choices, any bad choices. That's mm-hmm. uh, that's that's true. There's some very helpful lessons there, things we need to rethink and be critical about our own lives. And uh, so many Christians get involved in the, quote, culture wars um, and uh, mean well, but sometimes not always thinking uh, entirely critically about what's being communicated, um, you know, what's being left out, uh, and, and how the best way is to to be Christians in this world and to speak the truth in love. Dr. Christian, I'm, I'm curious. This is just a fascinating and very I mean, just pastorally rich discussion. Um, when you think about the, the Dutch tradition as a whole, um, Bavink, Kuiper, et cetera, and I know that there are, there are differences and, and some might compare, you know, Kuiper more to Luther in terms of a more forceful personality and Bavink to Calvin a little more uh, measured and perhaps um, integrated at points. Uh, how, how would you speak to the relationship between Bavink and Kuiper? Uh, their theological method, et cetera. And do you think there are just things that we need uh, from the Dutch tradition as a whole, but specifically Bob Inc. and Kuiper today uh, that you would add even to just the focus here on marriage and family? The general question about the relationship of Bob Inc. and Kuiper and their contribution in their day, um, if I, I, to use an analogy that is uh, uh, perhaps uh, very, very vulnerable, I, I would like to compare um, Kuiper uh, to someone with the heart, uh, the heart of a genius, and Bavink, the head of a genius. Mm-hmm. Um, wow! I think that I think that Kuiper was able to uh, operate in public with an enthusiasm, a charisma, and a, an ethos that was uh, very effective. We all know that he was Prime Minister of the Netherlands for a time. Mm-hmm. He founded the Free University. He was a, an editor and a publisher. He did so many, many, many things. What people don't know is that Bavink also was a politician mm-hmm. in the Dutch government for a time. Um, but but Bavink is the more uh, reserved. He's the more studious um his he wrote with with a clarity that makes translating bavink um a real delight i've often compared my various people that i'm translating you know when you translate bavink it's like walking through a meadow when you translate kuiper it's like climbing a mountain <laughs> you, you know it, it's tough it's tough slogging and sledding but when you get to the top of the mountain when you're finished you, you look back and say wow that was quite an effort with Bavink, you 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 are enjoying while you're doing it, and you're pausing and saying, you know, I got to think about this. This is profound. Uh-huh. I can't wait to get this finished. Which is what happened with this book. May I pause? May I tell your story about Please. this book? Please, Please. Here. Yeah, um, I received an email from nowhere uh, one day from a Baptist minister down in Tennessee who said, "We heard that you're translating." Herman Bovings, the Christian family. We would like to help you with this, and what we'll do is we'll offer you the use of a mountain cabin in the Appalachian Mountains oh, to complete well. that translation. <laughs> David, we need to write our dissertations there. No doubt. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you I know, know who that is. <laughs> 
that that week, those two weeks, or that week in uh, in that cabin will for, be a, be a permanent memory for me and my wife. Yeah. We, I had I had internet access, so I could work there. And then in the afternoons, we'd go hiking on the Appalachian oh, Trail. Wow! And uh, I we have a hobby called geocaching. We yeah. enjoyed that. And then I'd return to work at night, and uh, it was it was a very idyllic opportunity. And then I was able to preach for this friend of mine and explain the, the work to which the congregation then was contributing by giving us groceries, etc. And um, and they then participated in sponsoring this translation. Wow. And uh, hospitality. That's a great story. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Oh, that's great to hear. And I think that's just a testimony to the importance of this book. And uh, also, I'm just so thankful that you've been able to work through it uh, to translate it. Now it's available uh, to people to read in English. Well, thank you. I appreciate that encouragement. And, uh, yeah, I consider that this kind of labor is a, is a lasting enduring legacy uh, for the coming generation. Mm-hmm. Now, this book is available on Amazon Kindle. Uh, it shouldn't scare you off uh, because the Amazon Kindle apps are available on all sorts of devices as well as computers. You can get the book uh, through Amazon.com. Just search for Bavink Christian Family. Uh, is this book available in, in hard copy or are there plans to release it in hard oh, yes. copy? Okay. Oh yes, it is. It is currently available in hard copy, put out by Christian's Library Press yes. in Grand Rapids. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Excellent. So uh, you can find that book uh, wherever good, solid uh, theological books are sold. But if you can't wait a split second, then you go get it through WhisperNet, <laughs> and you can go find it on Amazon, as I did, uh, uh, to read through this book. Uh, this has been just a fantastic discussion. Uh, Dr. Klosterman, we want to thank you not only for all your translation work and the work to come, uh, but also for taking the time today to speak with us. Thanks so much. Well, thank you for the opportunity, and uh, gentlemen, it's been a pleasure. I really enjoy these conversations, and I hope they do serve God's people. We do, too. That is our prayer, and I'd love to have you back soon. We can talk about all sorts of things. Uh, Where can people find you, Nelson? Uh, Where uh, is the web address for Worldview Resources International? Well, if they if they simply uh, if they would simply click on or type out Worldview Resources International, all one word, no spaces, WorldviewResourcesInternational.com. Yep, and you can find a number of things there. Also, uh, Dr. Klosterman's blog is linked uh, on that site. You can read the Cosmic Eye. A lot of great writing there, um, occasionally, but it, it's always at the center of attention because it's. Uh, well thought out, and uh, it's right on the point. So if you'd like to read uh, about uh, some Christian thought there, uh, check out Cosmic Eye, Dr. Klosterman's writing. Uh, you can find us online at reformedforum.org. There you'll find information about all of our programs as well as news about what we're up to. A lot of new things we've been doing recently. Uh, to encourage you to check out our programs, Proclaiming Christ, which looks at uh, redemptive history. Now they're actually diving into the book of Genesis, uh, looking at specific texts and explaining them in light of God's overarching plan of redemption and revelation. And you can also find Faith of Our Fathers, which is a short little podcast, uh, uh, hopefully every week or every other week, uh, looking at uh, different issues and uh, items of importance uh, through the early church. So visit us online at reformedforum.org for information about those things. We want to thank everybody for listening, and we hope you join us again next time on Christ the Center. <laughs>